From WNYC, this is Money Talking. I'm Charlie Herman. This week, Matt Lauer, anchor of NBC's Today Show, was fired for what was described as inappropriate sexual behavior in the workplace. We have decided to terminate his employment. While it is the first complaint about his behavior in the over 20 years he has been at NBC News, we were also presented with reason to believe this may not have been an isolated incident. Lauer's dramatic firing is yet the latest story of men who have used their authority in the office to harass, demean, possibly even assault female colleagues. Charlie Rose fired from both CBS and PBS. Michigan's John Conyers is facing a House ethics investigation. Senator Al Franken being accused of sexual harassment. Despite these revelations, this is not a new issue when it comes to the workplace. And for years, companies have tried to prevent sexual harassment through various types of trainings. We're going to talk about sexual harassment in the workplace, how to recognize it, establishing procedures to report it, and how to prevent it. But if the problem continues, are they working? Well, joining me is Yuki Noguchi. She's an NPR correspondent who regularly reports on issues in the workplace. Yuki, good morning. Good morning. When did these trainings to stop sexual harassment at the workplace, when did they become popular? Well, the EEOC started recognizing sexual harassment and putting out guidelines about sexual harassment and defining it, you know, in the 80s. But it was really in the 1990s that you started to see a movement towards sexual harassment training. In part, there was greater awareness because in 1991, Anita Hill testified that now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas sexually harassed her when they worked together. So that sort of raised the awareness. And then through the 90s, you saw some cases. So employers started to be held responsible for sexual harassment that occurred in the workplace. And so sexual harassment training then sort of grew out of that because companies were trying to limit their liability. So if the EEOC defined it going all the way back to the 80s, do we have any sense of how successful these trainings have been? Are they effective? No. I mean, last year, the the EEOC put out this report on harassment generally and said that sexual harassment training in particular hasn't worked for the last 30 years. The reason it hasn't worked is largely because it's sort of viewed by both employers and workers as a kind of check-the-box exercise, you know, to limit the employer's legal liability and not as an actual sort of program to try to prevent the actual behavior. And so a lot of times you don't get real-life training or face-to-face training, which some trainers believe would be more effective than an obligatory paper that you sign saying that you've received this training or, you know, watching an online video, which often doesn't put people in realistic scenarios. Hey, girls, so we need to prep for this upcoming trade show. So unless the plan here is to stop traffic with thigh-high boots and halter tops, we're going to need strong messaging and strong branding. So what do you got? Have you taken one of these before? Oh, yeah. NPR requires them every two years. You know, it's very stilted. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not the kind of thing that inspires any confidence that a would-be sexual harasser would watch this video and then be reformed. I mean, that it, it doesn't give you that sense at all. NPR, which has had its own sexual harassment scandal, has acknowledged that its own sexual harassment training hasn't worked. And you're hearing this even from the trainers themselves who conduct these kinds of programs, that employers have relied on these online training videos, which are a cheaper, faster way to get these trainings done, but less effective. Are there examples of companies that are handling this issue of sexual harassment correctly? Well, one way to know whether a company is handling it correctly is 
if a company does, for example, a climate survey to sort of gauge where their company culture is. And if they get healthy marks from employees, that would be a good sign. If a company regularly has conversations about discrimination and harassment in the workplace and literature guiding people who might have complaints to the right spot, things like bystander training, you know, like what does somebody do if they are aware of sexual harassment or discrimination, those kinds of training programs. There are many ways in which a company can encourage the right kind of culture. I don't think anyone would say that there's a 100 percent prevention mechanism, but those are the kinds of things that one might look for if you're looking for an environment that would be a safer environment. One thing you often hear is companies say, well, we didn't have any complaints. We didn't know that we had a problem. That's right. And the complicated thing about that is it might mean that you don't have a problem, but it also might mean you have a strong culture of retaliation that prevents people from bringing their claims forward. And so what a lot of sexual harassment trainers will say is that sexual harassment really is something that happens in a culture where there are usually other problems, management problems, problems of civility, discrimination. And so the best way to deal with a sexual harassment culture is to really do a climate survey and figure out Do employees really feel comfortable coming forward bringing complaints? Do they feel that they can challenge their supervisor? Do they have a clear line to other authorities who they feel would listen to them? And so these are the kinds of things that you have to determine, not just the number of complaints that are coming to HR, but do people feel comfortable bringing forward complaints if they do have them? While you see a lot of companies are saying that they're taking this seriously, We've also had instances where there have been some that have paid out massive multi-million dollar settlements versus actually taking action. And I'm wondering, how do you get companies to take the issue seriously if they just see this as a cost-benefit analysis? And if we pay out a couple of payments here, no one will really know about this, and we can still keep our star employees here, and and we don't have to worry about this. Well, that's a big problem with sexual harassment is that a lot of times the star employees are considered immune from the rules that apply to the rest of us. And I think the costs go far beyond just the settlement costs, right? I think that's something that employers are starting to realize. Just to use an example, you know, here at NPR, as I mentioned, we had our own uh, sexual harassment scandal. Our top news editor was fired for a number of sexual harassment allegations. And I can tell you that the environment here has been hugely disrupted. The impact on worker morale, on the, just the level of distraction, the difficulty for management and sort of communicating and, and showing leadership through these kinds of periods. I can't imagine that any bottom line focused company would really invite that into their workplace. And I think that that's something that is becoming apparent now to all employers is just the cost is much higher than just a settlement, for example. Yuki Noguchi is a correspondent at NPR. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm Charlie Herman, and this is Money Talking from WNYC. 